Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. A nation that can't control its energy sources can't control its future, once wrote a young Barack Obama. If that maxim holds, then the post-Brexit era sold to the nation as taking back control has fallen at the first hurdle. Energy companies are going under on a weekly basis, others warning that government intervention is all but inevitable. Gas prices are soaring and the UK has to pay more for its electricity than any comparable nation. Petrol suppliers have to stagger deliveries in close selected forecourts for lack of delivery drivers and long-term forecasts are predicting a particularly long and cold winter. The Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy has described it as a perfect storm. But how much of that storm was predicted and warned about and how much of it was even self-inflicted. My guest today is Amit Gudka. Amit spent a decade trading gas and electricity before co-founding one of the UK's largest green energy suppliers. After leaving at the start of this year, he founded Field, a company dedicated to accelerating the build-out of the renewable infrastructure needed to reach net zero, starting with battery storage. Welcome to the podcast, Amit. Thanks, Alex. Uh, great to be here. Before we even discuss the current crisis, can you explain why energy was already more expensive in the UK than in comparable economies? So, you know, the UK is at the, you know, the UK is an island and is heavily dependent on imports and is kind of at the end of the line um, in terms of those imports. So the UK used to have a big reserves of, of natural gas in the North Sea you know, depleted and used a lot of those up and exported a lot of them in, in the 80s and onwards. And um, those 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 reserves have depleted and we're heavily reliant on, on imports for those. So part of it is literally geography. It's, it's the fact that we're at the end of all the pipe, pipelines. Yeah, that's a big reason for it. So, you know, we're heavily dependent on imports and that's for gas and likewise for electricity. You know, we do depend on imports, for example, on the French interconnector during peak periods when the electricity is the most uh, expensive and, and therefore we need to pay a, su- a slight premium to French prices to, to attract those imports. How do business energy rates compare to rates for domestic consumption? Do the two always go hand in hand or is there a disparity sometimes? I mean, they're similar because the, the overall uh, the overall makeup um, of a bill for a business uh, business customer is the same as for a domestic customer. The difference is that a domestic consumer has more usage in electricity during the peak period uh, between, you know, say 5 and 9 p.m. in the evening, which is the most expensive period uh, for electricity. So that's why there's more usage there. And therefore, domestic uh, customers on an average throughout the day would probably be paying slightly more. But the overall sort of taxes, subsidies that are paid for through your bill uh, are pretty similar for business customers as well as domestic so most businesses also pay the sort of running rate. They can't pre-negotiate. They can't hedge, basically, yeah. in in the ways that the suppliers do. So, yeah, so I guess on that point before as well about difference between business and residential, in the UK, we have a, there is a price cap for residential mm-hmm. uh, customers. So um, there's, there's, a, there's, there's a capped price, essentially, which you can't go above, whilst that doesn't apply for business customers. You know, in this current environment, and you know, there's been headlines about this. I think today, where you know, care homes, for example, which are classified as large businesses, they are exposed to these to these very high gas prices in the way mm-hmm. that domestic consumers won't be. So the price cap. Good time to mention it. Energy companies have, in the past, been accused of passing on increased 
cost when wholesale prices go up, but being sluggish in passing savings when wholesale prices go the other way. And this is effectively what led to the price cap. Was that a fair criticism at the time, do you think? Is it still a fair criticism? And is the price cap a fair solution? Yeah, I think that was the history of, you know, of the UK market when you had, when it was very incumbent dominated, when wholesale prices went up, the prices for consumers went up quickly. And when they fell, uh, those weren't passed on. So I think that is what happened um, historically. Mm. But, you know, the price cap also, this is a sector where there have been, you know, very low margins for some time, enforcing a cap on top of that in a market where prices are getting increasingly volatile, I think puts even Mm. more strain. Okay, so on to the current crisis. Why is the UK so uniquely exposed to this price volatility? What factors go into that? I mean, I'd say, you know, Europe and, you know, Northwest Europe, uh, you can kind of group together. Um, and then there's a slight premium that the UK is paying versus versus Northwest Europe at the moment. But you can kind of group those things together. There's a good amount of interconnection between uh, the UK and Northwest Europe. The UK's gas and electricity prices trade at a slight premium to uh well the gas prices trade at a slight premium to northwest european gas prices um and electricity there's there's a bit more of a disconnect i think when we think about europe as a whole really good supplies of gas in the in 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 the north sea um as i mentioned 20 to 30 years ago and those reserves have declined i mean norwegian supplies have ramped up in the meantime but you also have dutch onshore gas uh, so the Groningen field in, in, in the Netherlands, which, you know, big supply of gas to, to Europe and northwestern Europe, that's declined. And, and recently there's been caps put on its on its output um, because of, you know, the issues it was causing for people who live in the area. You know, there were, there were small scale earthquakes happening. So there's been a decline in production of gas in, uh, in and around northwestern Europe. And then on top of that, uh, you know, at the same time, we've had this big, big shift in demand for gas uh, globally. So Asia... China, Southeast Asia, India, very dependent on coal historically. Mm-hmm. And there's been a move over the last over the last 10, 20 years to gas. And, you know, gas is a cleaner fossil fuel. It produces less carbon than coal. And you know, that's been encouraged by everyone, right? It's been encouraged domestically in, in those countries, but also the yeah, international yeah. community has, has, has really encouraged that. And that's meant that you know, there's been a big increase in the amount those countries have industrialized you know, even further during that period. And, and yeah, the amount of, and, and there's been a huge amount of switching from coal to gas. So the imports, the imports of liquefied natural gas, which is a way that they, um, they, they import gas. So, you know, gas from somewhere like Qatar, which is uh, liquefied, put onto a big, big ship and, and, and transported. Those imports, which used to be really dominated by Japan and Korea, now you have now you have other sources like like China, which have really increased their demand, and I think is the biggest importer of liquefied natural gas now, and that's set to increase over the next, uh, you know, continue to increase as they move progressively more from from coal to gas. And the UK, because of it, and, and Europe, because of its declining domestic production, is increasingly reliant on imports and now has to compete with those countries where the, the procurement of of energy is typically more centrally centrally done rather than left to the market and that's why the market in the uk is now competing with fair you know often quite centralized tenders that happen import tenders that happen in those countries for gas and that's sort of the origins of of where we've got and then there's been some quite recent local things that have happened that have really exacerbated that that crunch okay so before we look at what we need to do to be less exposed in the future 
Are there quick solutions available to companies or the government right now, sort of, you know, quick and dirty fixes that they can do? Right now, the UK and Europe are very exposed to global gas prices. And as we go into winter, limited short and dirty fixes that can happen that can be carried out for for gas um, in particular. There's two parts to this, the sort of energy crisis that we're seeing right now. There's the gas story, which is a global supply and demand, global global constraint story. But then a, a big thing that's also been happening very recently and in the last couple of months is real spikes in, in electricity prices um, intraday. So you've seen some super high spot prices, the very short-term prices of electricity, particularly during peak periods. Electricity would typically have traded at between 50 and 100 pounds per megawatt hour during during the peak periods in the evening. And in the last month, we've seen prices during those periods you know, well over a thousand pounds, two thousand pounds, even four thousand pounds. We've seen during those periods. Yeah. And on those, the the disparity between the UK and Europe seems quite a bit bigger as well. From having looked at the sort of map of the the spot prices, yeah, the, it, it seems that the difference is like you know sometimes sixty, seventy, eighty percent. Yeah, and that's where the UK becomes, you know, as mentioned before, it's the, the sort of the end of the line island with some interconnection to Europe. During those periods where we've seen really high peak prices, during those peak prices, we need to make sure that we're importing from from France, for example. We've had very low wind. There's been a lot of nuclear, you know, a real lack of nuclear availability during that period, and that's really led to this short-term electricity crunch, which is, yeah, in many ways is a, is a, is a separate. I mean, there's obviously some interplay, but it's a separate thing to the global gas crisis that we see. There are two issues that the UK really needs to, and and Europe really need to address. In the short run, I think for electricity, you should see nuclear availability improve. Wind has improved. You've saw, you know, a particularly still period. Those things combined, you've already seen a a bit of an easing in those electricity prices. In terms of fixes, I think the fixes really for this are more medium term. Well, I, I think firstly, it's sort of some of the narrative recently has been renewables are to blame for the gas crisis. I think clearly the, the reason why there is a shortage of gas is because everyone is very reliant on gas, not because they're very reliant yeah. on, on renewables. So it's interesting how that narrative has become quite, yes. quite a popular one. <laughs> and, clearly- as a former regulator, because um, I used to work for the Office of Fair Trading, I find it remarkable that the green levy and the price cap, which are the two things that most energy companies hated already, uh, are all coincidentally also the things they're pointing to as responsible for the current crisis. One, one might think there's an agenda there. This might sound stupid, and do please feel free to tell me it's stupid, but can we as consumers do anything? I mean, would there be a point in sort of getting people to, you know, do run their washing machine at night or, you know, to, to shift demand, as it were, in those off-peak hours to ease pressure? Or is that not how it works at all? Very much so. So, you know, again, if we sort of break it down to the two parts to that, on the gas side, right, which is the key driver of 90% of domestic heating in the UK is gas. So for, for homes, people use gas to heat their homes rather than electric heating. As we go into winter, and if it is cold, a big way of, of that of demand resp- or, or with high prices, how there can be a response is by you reduce demand at high prices. Some of that will come from industry who are more immediately exposed to, to wholesale prices because they don't have a cap. 
Uh, and, you know, as we've seen with fertilizer plants deciding to, to switch off, et cetera. And, you know, th- there will be more of that yeah. immediately. So they could, for instance, run automated processes at night. Yeah. As an example. And so, so on gas, exactly, you, you might with, with higher prices. But then on the electricity side, demand shifting from peak periods to off peak periods is, is, is very much something that, that needs to happen and will happen over, over the medium term. And the, the thing that, to, to really smooth out that electricity difference between fairly reasonable overnight prices and super high peak prices, you need a build out of storage. And the UK is actually fairly well advanced in that, the amount of battery storage that's being built out. That's what we're doing with our, with our company. And you know, we see the UK as relatively well advanced versus other countries. Increasing the amount of battery storage in the UK helps you store the renewable energy that's produced overnight or in off-peak periods or when it's in abundance so that you can use it during peak periods currently when, you know, the, when the price is, is much higher and demand is much higher. Building out a battery storage project takes takes months, not years. The investment case for, 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 those, for battery storage is, is, um, is very clear right now. So, you know, mm-hmm. that, that build out is happening and it's something that will happen in the medium term. I think going back to your point on residential, you know, consumers, what can they do during the winter? Because we have a price cap, there is limited incentive for people who are on tariffs that are capped to actually reduce their demand when the price is high. Will we see a big response from residential demand with high prices? I'm not so sure. Could you maybe stimulate a, a shift by not necessarily, you know, making the price above the price cap? Because obviously you can't. But can you make the differential between the peak rate and the off-peak rate more notable? You know, could companies basically go to the cap on peak rate and then make off-peak rate so much more attractive that it would stimulate individual choices of thinking that maybe I should do my washing at night time and maybe I should, you know, turn the the central heating on for a couple of hours, uh, you know, between four and six rather than between seven and nine to heat the house, that sort of choice. Yeah, and you are seeing those tariffs in the market. You're starting to see those Electric vehicle tariffs, the likes of Octopus Bulb, etc., are are showing they have a much you know a much more reduced overnight price uh, or off peak price versus peak to to incentivize people to charge up things like electric vehicles. But again, you know these things are relatively niche compared to the overall overall public. So over time, I think that's going to be a big a big shift that we see in the short run. Not so much. Would instances like like these always reinvigorate the discussion around privatization versus nationalization would renationalizing all or parts of this sector help at all or does it have the the potential to help at all i mean i think you know some of the interesting points around this are um you know nationalization can it ensure security of supply you know the potential big advantage of nationalization versus yeah. uh, efficiency, you know, and, and, you know, I guess excess, excess fat in organizations, um, you know, which is always mm. the big worry about nationalization. Yeah. Ultimately, with, on, if you, again, go back to gas, in terms of supply, if you nationalized the supply sector, for example, ultimately, with the UK being a net importer of, of gas or a big importer of gas, and very, you know, it's ultimately going to be exposed to global gas prices. Uh, yeah, for imports yeah. and so 
who's picking up the tab for that, whether it's the government, which then have to pay for it through taxation or it's through energy bills, is ultimately you're still exposed to that. I mean, one could make the argument that that by gathering your purchasing power, you might be able to achieve a better price in an ordinary market. I mean, I think these are big markets, but the, the, I think you, you talked earlier about taking back control, which was the big <laughs> slogan of the last five years. And, you know, there are areas, though, you know, maybe where the UK doesn't produce a lot of its own gas, where it could do so, right? Where, so, for example, increased efficiency with homes over time, right? So improved insulation, you know, the UK housing stock is notoriously badly insulated versus other parts of northwestern Europe or northern Europe. That helps reduce the, the dependency on gas. Moving to heat pumps from gas boilers over time, so electrifying heat, again, that can reduce the dependency on gas. And then on the electricity side, you know, we do have this actually quite thriving renewable sector with 40% of UK electricity being produced from renewables, a very high percentage by Western developed country standard. That's something that, again, is abundant here, wind in particular. If we can store that effectively so we can harness it and use it at times when we do, then we are taking back control from these and not as exposed to to, to markets. So without going into a massive conversation about their methods, the overall objective of uh, Insulate Britain, the protest movement going on at the moment, you would uh, you would have some sympathy with their objective. Yeah, I think the insulating homes, electrifying heat is, you think about the move to renewable generation over the last, it's been, it's been actually a pretty impressive build out of renewable generation in the UK. That's moving along well. Mm. Electrifying transport, that's something that's also, again, moving in the right direction. There's good policies in place and expected big build-out of electric vehicle sector over the next few years. It's electrifying heat that is, is difficult um, or, and, or decarbonising heat. Part of that's insulation mm. and part of it's, um, you know, replacing gas boilers with other technology. Yeah, and there's still homes being built today that are poorly insulated and have gas boilers in it, which does seem a little on the mad side. What about battery development? I understand your company field is particularly focused on this. How does that help? So battery storage really helps with this electricity, um, the, the electricity issue, the short-term electricity issue where you have fairly well supplied off-peak periods, you know, because you have a bun, even in with renewables are low, you have enough supply to meet demand. It's when we get into those mm. peak constrained periods, there isn't enough generation to meet, meet that demand. Grids, what batteries do, and particularly grid scale batteries, so large batteries that are connected to the, to the national grid, they charge up when the price of electricity is low and there's an abundance of electricity, often renewable electricity, and dispatch, you know, discharge the battery at peak periods uh, when, mm. when demand is higher and, and, and the price is higher. And that's how they sort of, the, the battery sort of pays for itself. The technology for that, right, for batteries is quite well proven, right? Lithium-ion batteries aren't anything new, and even grid-scale lithium-ion batteries are, are, are not new. The costs have come down for lithium-ion batteries, combined with the, the, you know, the volatility that you see in the markets, even before this recent, you know, super high volatility period. The economics now for grid-scale batteries makes sense. They can be built out you know, by companies such as ourselves without the need for government subsidy right we're, we're doing this completely mm-hmm. unsubsidized what you need now and I, I think this is kind of goes back to sort of this more private markets point of view but financial markets of financial investors who 
can in infrastructure investors in particular can be quite conservative and cautious about what they invest in and invest in asset classes that they've done so before while something like a battery is sort of new and and maybe seen as something more risky and increasing investment into batteries which which is happening is the big challenge and you know i think is the and making that happen fast um I, i think is the big challenge but the big opportunity for the uk you know we're there now so Building out battery storage is something that's economic, doesn't rely on government subsidies, and solves a lot of that short-term, very peak-price electricity problem that that the UK has right now, a lot Mm. of Europe has right now. And, you know, if that hasn't built out, it's going to continue continue to be high. And, I mean, can I ask you, is is the technology that's there and the the projected price efficiency of these kinds of methods, might we see it permeate even to the home level, as it were. Is it possible that every home in the future will be kitted out with a battery that collects power from, you know, a few solar panels and a wind turbine, you know, that's sort of mini domestic use and uses that at times of high demand? Or are we in the realms of science fiction? No, I think it is, you know, what you describe is the sort of the sort of decentralised, uh, energy utopia, right? Where people are very self-sufficient, solar panels at home, they have a battery in home, or they have an electric vehicle that they charge up with en- with electricity from from their solar panels, or they charge up overnight, and they use that electric vehicle to go to work. And they come back, and they actually use the battery from their electric vehicle to power their home um, in during the peak periods. So it becomes very sort of self-sufficient. That all exists now, and it's it's. Some of it's economic, some of it's, you know, not quite. But the, the way that that's progressing, that's suppliers are rolling out these energy suppliers are rolling out these products and offerings at, at the moment, you know, in beyond pilot phase. So that what you know, what you describe isn't in the realms of, of science fiction. It's almost here now. It's yeah. coming. Um, w- one last question I want to ask you, Amir. Do you think th- there seems to me that there's a per- perception of green in general by the right wing of conservative politics around the world as a sort of lefty policy. Do you think that has hurt the cause, especially in countries like the UK, which do tend towards conservatism? It's a really interesting question. I think if you actually, you know, look at who has who are the owners or who have been some of the, you know, the people who have benefited from renewable generation to date and, and high, you know, and some of the high subsidies for that landowners or people with land to, to build this stuff on. So it's very mixed, really, the, the yeah. you know, who, who's and, and I think this conservative government's been at least, you know, out loud in terms of what they've been saying, very pro-green. And, you know, it's arguably the, yeah. one of the most right-wing governments we've had for a while. So but the, but there is a sort of fragmentation between that, between the sort of realpolitik side of things and between tabloids traditionally describing green policies as, you know, loony lefty stuff. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. You see it every day that that things that are perfectly sensible and perfectly achievable are attacked merely because they're under the general banner of environmentalism yeah and i i think one of the a key reason why or or why that's something that's easy to maybe stoke up is a lot of the subsidies for renewable generation 
over time, which, you know, I think you need subsidies to to get wind and solar, for example, to a place now where they are more economic than fossil fuels mm-hmm. without subsidy, right? So that's, and that's a good result from these, these things having been subsidized. But those things come directly, the, the way they're generally paid for, renewable subsidies have generally been paid for through people's energy bills rather than through kind of rather than through general taxation, which is maybe a bit more hidden and, and obviously yeah. means tested. So everyone kind of pays the same pence per kilowatt hour uh, amount to, to subsidize renewables. And so it's probably a lot more visible. And those, you know, those charges have gone up over the last decade. It's a lot more visible and can, you know, is something that's maybe potentially easier to, to stoke tensions over. So you see how that's how that's come about. But ultimately, the costs of not doing anything um, over time, and this is, I guess, is the difference. Yes, as we're, as we're finding out. As we're out. finding out right now, because it's high dependency on gas right now that, um, that is driving, you know, it's going to drive ultimately very high costs. It's not the high cost of renewables. Amit Gutka, thank you for your time and expertise and, and best of luck with your new venture field. Thank you very much. Thanks, Alex. Listeners, remember there's some new podcast from either The Bunker or The Ogold Family pretty much every day. You can support either financially on the funding platform, Patreon. You can also help us in a very simple way that costs you nothing. Subscribe, review and rate us on your favourite podcast platform. Every time you do that, our voice is amplified and promoted to new listeners. So take a few seconds to do it now. I'd put my money on solar energy. What a source of power. I hope we don't have to wait until oil and coal run out before we tackle that. Those were the words of Thomas Edison. Yet here we are, more than a century later, still poisoning the planet instead of working in harmony with its limitless renewable resources, still discussing whether it might be a good idea to change. This is Alex Andreu in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.